Twelfth Night has Shakespeare's most modern take on issues of gender and sexuality. For every age, he has seemed already to be there with us or, or ahead of us. It's a wonderful play which blends in the most perfect form, I think we find in Shakespeare, melancholy and merriment. It's a comedy which really knows that you, you have to take your laughs where you can and that there is always the burden of grief and the burden of the past over everything we do. And it's a play which is really interesting about forms of love and friendship, about selfishness and selflessness, and about how communities stick, ossify and are made to change. I actually really love Twelfth Night. I think it might be one of my favourite plays. I like that bittersweet sort of melancholy comedy. I think that suits many of us um, better than a, a sort of hey nonny no kind of a comedy. And I also think the play has got some really interesting things to say about about gender and about sexuality and about acceptance and how those all fit with, with comedy, which is a genre we've tended to think of as perhaps being a bit exclusionary rather than in inclusive. I'm Emma Smith. I'm Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford in the UK. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. In this episode, we discuss Twelfth Night with Professor Smith. Written around 1601, this comedy is named for the festival on the last night of the Twelve Days of Christmas, on the eve of the Feast of the Epiphany. Twelfth Night, which marks both the culmination and the close of Christmas festivities, is an appropriate name for this comedy which strangely mixes sadness and joy. It begins under the threat of death. Twins Viola and Sebastian are shipwrecked in Illyria and each thinks the other has drowned. Viola takes on the guise of a man named Cesario and enters the service of her late father's friend, Duke Orsino. Cesario helps Orsino woo the Countess Olivia, all while Viola is falling in love with Orsino and Olivia is falling for Cesario. The play ends with marriage and romantic satisfaction for some of its characters, but not for all. Along the way, it explores many different kinds of love, attraction and identity, especially through the figure of Viola or Cesario, a female character who takes on a male identity and who would have originally been played in Shakespeare's company by a man. I think Shakespeare enables us to think uh, about issues which are important to us now. I don't think of Shakespeare really as a historical writer at all. Uh, I think of his plays as, I guess, texts to think with and to bring into our own contemporary world. I think one of the ways the play has seemed so interesting to me now in the 21st century is that, you know, we know a lot more now about trans narratives, about non-binary gender identities. And we might be able to look a bit differently at a play where uh, a female character arrives shipwrecked on a uh, on, a, on a beach where she knows somebody very prominent in the local community through family connections, but nevertheless chooses not to get help in a normal way, but to dress as a man, take on a male name and pursue her new identity in this new space with this, with, with this complete sort of change.
With her change of identity, Viola also catalyzes change for other characters in Illyria. Before she arrives, Orsino and Olivia are fixed in certain emotional states. The play's first line, If music be the food of love, play on, is spoken by Orsino, who is pining with love for Olivia. But his dramatic, somewhat indulgent opening speech might make us question how genuine this love is. Orsino never sees Olivia in the flesh until the big final scene in which all the characters are there. He thinks about her, he imagines her, he idealises her, he puts her on a pedestal. He sends a messenger to give her sort of fancy, poetic kind of speeches, but doesn't know anything about her. Olivia too is consumed by melancholy, but not because of love. Her father and brother have died, and she has vowed to refuse all forms of romance while she mourns for seven years. We then meet another sister mourning a lost brother. Viola is washed ashore in Illyria after a shipwreck. Her twin brother Sebastian is nowhere to be seen, and she fears he is drowned. When the ship's captain tells her they are near Orsino's court, she decides, I'll serve this duke. But she doesn't simply present herself to Orsino, even though he was a friend of her father's. She dresses as a man and enters Orsino's service as the male page Cesario. Cesario quickly wins Orsino's favour, though Orsino teases Cesario that his red lips and high voice make him resemble a woman's part. Orsino sends Cesario to woo Olivia for him, a painful task for the disguised Viola. Whoe'er I woo, myself would be his wife, she confesses. She has fallen in love with Orsino. Olivia has another eager suitor at her house, the wealthy, foolish knight Sir Andrew Agucheek. Sir Andrew is egged on by Sir Toby, Olivia's rascally, drunken uncle, who helps himself to Sir Andrew's money. Also at Olivia's house is a professional fool, or a loud fool, named Feste. Figures like Feste were attached to the court or to aristocratic houses and were permitted to say apparently disrespectful things that other people wouldn't be allowed to say. That function of the allowed fool is traditionally to uh, use a kind of jesting or bantering form of particularly wordplay to show the vanity or the the foolishness of the rest of the world. And so the great trick of the fool is to show really how everybody else other than him is, is foolish because they don't have the insight that he does. Feste gives a witty proof that Olivia is a fool because she mourns that her brother is in heaven. Malvolio, Olivia's haughty, austere steward, is contemptuous of Feste's jokes. But Olivia chides him gently for taking offence at the fool, saying Malvolio is sick with self-love. Cesario arrives with a declaration of Orsino's love. He and Olivia quickly fall into lively flirtatious banter. Olivia again rejects Orsino's suit, but she is taken with Cesario, this confident, well-favoured young man. When he leaves, she catches herself meditating on this youth's perfections and exclaims, Even so quickly may one catch the plague? She vowed to seclude herself from love, but Cesario is making her break her vow. 
And so begins the play's complex romantic triangle. So, so because Viola Cesario is an object of attraction for both Orsino and Olivia, it's it's not really possible to, as it were, completely straighten out this play. Someone somewhere, or or perhaps all all partners, feel feel a sense of attraction which is not absolutely heterosexual. It may be that Orsino sees through the disguise if you cast a female actor in the role of Viola then in a way it's more likely that Orsino somehow discerns that this unmasculine man is really is really a woman. That doesn't quite explain what's happening with Olivia. So I think the play is quite feels quite permissive about those kinds of attractions. Act two opens with another kind of attraction, possibly a deep friendship, possibly a romantic love. Viola's brother Sebastian did not drown, but was rescued by a sailor named Antonio. Sebastian bids farewell to Antonio as he heads to Orsino's court. Antonio pleads, If you will not murder me for my love, let me be your servant. But Sebastian refuses. Antonio's life may be in danger if he's found in Orsino's court, where he has many enemies, but he still decides to follow Sebastian. Come what may, I do adore thee so that danger shall seem sport and I will go. Even in the language of male friendship, which is more intimate than we would often use now, it was very common for men to talk about loving their their male friends or feeling intimately sort of recognised or known by them or them as soulmates and so on. Even, even in that context, I think... I, I do adore these so is 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 quite is is quite passionate. Olivia too is pursuing her love. She sends a ring to Cesario and Viola realizes that Olivia has fallen for her in her male guise. She wonders how this tangled love plot will end. My master loves her dearly and I poor monster fond as much on him and she mistaken seems to dote on me. What will become of this? We then see another plot taking shape. Malvolio scolds Feste, Sir Andrew and Sir Toby for their noise and drinking, and they grow indignant at his pompous, repressive ways. Dost thou think, because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? Sir Toby demands. Maria, Olivia's attendant, calls Malvolio a kind of Puritan and plans revenge. So Marvolio is a completely anti-festive character. He is lent to the play's carnival. He's somebody who is holding in goods and food and and supplies rather than spending them out. He's against music, he's against revelling, he's for an early night in bed. So he stands perhaps for an an anti-pleasure tendency or an emerging tendency. The Puritans in Shakespeare's England are an emerging radical Protestant group. They're, they are strongly opposed to aspects of life that they see as frivolous. They are pretty down on pleasure and self-indulgence. And in sort of 40 years' time, they're going to be in power in London. And one of the things they're going to do is close the theatres. Mariah, to Sir Toby's delight, says she can write a letter imitating Olivia's handwriting that will make Malvolio believe that Olivia loves him and make him behave like a fool in front of her. 
Meanwhile, Orsino is still pining for Olivia. While Feste sings a melancholy song about a lover nearing death, Orsino unburdens himself to Cesario and asks whether Cesario loves a woman. One of your complexion, Cesario replies. Orsino tells him to go plead with Olivia again. Cesario says he must accept Olivia's refusal, citing another story of disappointed love. He says that his father had a daughter who once loved someone, but she never told her love. Instead, she sat like patients on a monument, smiling at grief. The story seems to describe Viola's own feelings, hearing Orsino proclaim his love for Olivia and being unable to proclaim her love for him. This intimate conversation, charged with passion and frustration, shows how close Orsino and Cesario have become. Malvolio thinks he has discovered Olivia's passion when he finds Mariah's forged letter appearing to declare Olivia's love for him. Sir Toby and Sir Andrew, hidden nearby, can barely contain their laughter as Malvolio fantasises about becoming Count Malvolio. As the letter reads, Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. In this version of his life, people at, at his every whim, people run off and do his bidding. So it's a fantasy of social elevation, uh, of no longer being the steward, but being the master of the house. Olivia is endeavouring to thrust greatness upon Cesario, for whom her passion is only growing. She finally tells him openly, I love thee so that nor wit nor reason can my passion hide. But Cesario tells her, No woman shall be mistress of my heart, save I alone. Sir Andrew, observing Cesario and Olivia alone together, despairs of ever winning Olivia. Sir Toby persuades him to do some deed of valour to impress her, like challenging Cesario to a duel. Malvolio is also trying to impress Olivia. The letter said to put on cross-gartered yellow stockings, and he obeys the instructions. Olivia is so startled by Malvolio's bizarre appearance and flirtatious manner that she thinks he may be insane. Mariah and Sir Toby pretend to agree so that they can have him bound in a dark room, a common treatment for madness in Shakespeare's time. Sir Toby delivers Sir Andrew's challenge to Cesario. Cesario and Sir Andrew have just started their tremulous duel when Antonio enters. Mistaking Cesario for Sebastian, he draws his sword to protect him from Sir Andrew. Just then, officers from Orsino arrive and arrest Antonio. Antonio, remembering that he lent all his money to Sebastian, now asks Cesario to give him the money back. Cesario, confused, denies that Antonio gave him anything. Antonio is devastated that Sebastian, as he thinks, would be so unkind. But Viola, hearing herself addressed as Sebastian, is filled with a sudden hope that her brother might be alive. Just after Cesario is mistaken for Sebastian, Sebastian is mistaken for Cesario. Sir Toby and Sir Andrew come upon him and resume their fight. Olivia, too, thinks Sebastian is Cesario, and, as Antonio has just done, she throws herself into the fray to protect the man she loves. Sebastian is puzzled by her affectionate behaviour. 
I am mad or else this is a dream, he muses, but concludes, if it be thus to dream, still let me sleep. Olivia, delighted that Cesario now accepts her love, asks him to go to church and marry her. Sebastian agrees. It's a rapid event, but one the play has prepared us for. As soon as we meet Sebastian, we, we've got the coordinates of the play set out, haven't we? We know this is going to be how it's going to work out. So the fact that it takes a while for Sebastian to encounter Olivia and that then very quickly they marry each other, we have had time to get used to it. We know it's what's going to happen. I, I, th- I think sometimes part of the pleasure of Shakespeare's plays is more sort of structural than absolutely uh, characterological. I think you can enjoy the pleasure of seeing the choreography of how how a denouement is going to work out. And that's a pleasure which is different from and not necessarily at the same time as feeling a great uh, relation to characters at an emotional level and thinking, oh, how will it be for them? Or, you know, is this really the right marriage for them? While Sebastian wonders whether he is mad, Malvolio has been locked up as if he is mad. The unhappy steward pleads for paper to write to Olivia for help. Sir Toby is afraid of what Olivia will do if he upsets her any further and confesses, I would we were well rid of this knavery. Cesario returns to Olivia's house with Orsino. Still believing Cesario is Sebastian, Antonio explains to them how he rescued this young man and, pure for his love, followed him to Illyria. Olivia is puzzled to see Cesario, whom she believes she has just married, at Orsino's side. She brushes off Orsino to question Cesario. Orsino, growing angry and jealous, threatens to kill Cesario, though he cares for him too. He says, I'll sacrifice the lamb that I do love to spite a raven's heart within a dove. Cesario says he would willingly go to die with Orsino, whom he loves more than he could ever love a wife. Olivia, shocked, calls to him, Cesario, husband, stay. Orsino and Cesario are both confused, but a priest counters Cesario's denials and Orsino's disbelief by confirming that he did indeed marry Olivia to this man. Orsino, like Antonio, is devastated at a trusted friend's betrayal. He tells Cesario, Farewell and take her, but direct thy feet where thou and I henceforth may never meet. Into this tense scene come Sir Toby and Sir Andrew, crying that Cesario attacked them. After them comes Sebastian, who greets Antonio with love and relief. Looking from Sebastian to Cesario, Antonio asks, How have you made this division of yourself? Which is Sebastian? Sebastian now sees Cesario. Do I stand there? Were you a woman, I should my tears let fall upon your cheek and say, thrice welcome, drowned Viola. There's a wonderful sequence when Sebastian recognises Viola and and calls her by her name, and it's the, the first time her name is used in the spoken dialogue of the play. If you went to see the play performed, 
and hadn't read it, you wouldn't know what this character was called other than Cesario until Sebastian calls out Viola. But it's really striking that nobody picks that up and thinks, oh my God, this is the this is the real person. This is what this person's really called. They don't seem to feel the need for that real person under the disguise. And we see, importantly, Orsino continues to address Viola as Cesario. Sebastian tells the astonished Olivia, So comes it, lady, you have been mistook. You are betrothed both to a maid and man. Orsino understands that he too was mistaken about Cesario, and that despite Olivia's rejection, he may win a wife after all. Boy, he says to Cesario, thou hast said to me a thousand times, thou never shouldst love woman like to me. Viola says she will keep that promise and always be true to him. Orsino replies, Since you called me master for so long, here is my hand. You shall from this time be your master's mistress. This happy reunion is interrupted by Malvolio. Madam, he tells Olivia, you have done me notorious wrong. The tricksters confess the plot and Feste reminds Malvolio how he scorned them. Malvolio storms out, saying, I'll be revenged on the whole pack of you. Olivia laments his abuse. Orsino sends attendants to entreat him to a peace and recalls Olivia's attention to the two wedding celebrations. In terms of plot, the marriages of Olivia and Sebastian and Orsino and Viola represent a traditional romantic comic ending. But... In performance, the final tableau of Olivia Sebastian and Orsino Cesario can represent a playfully transgressive ending in terms of gender. So do the play's final lines, spoken by Orsino to his new partner. Cesario, come, for so you shall be while you are a man, but when in other habits you are seen, Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. The play ends with a song sung by Feste. Its refrain is, For the rain it raineth every day, until the last verse which ends, But that's all one, our play is done, and we'll strive to please you every day. These lyrics, like the final scene, reflect the play's mixture of mirth and melancholy. Malvolio, of course, has had his attempt to imagine a future for himself with Olivia and then being pretty cruelly treated. So he vows revenge on on everybody. And Feste, who's always been on the outside, he is still on the on the outside of things, present but observing rather than participating. So it has an unusual number of characters who are outside the circle and, and therefore perhaps draws attention to the idea that the comic ending is not for everyone. It's a world of sadness and rejection, as well as a world of connection and merriment that continues throughout. In the next episode, we'll look at Twelfth Night's strange combination of sadness and joy to discuss what tragedy and comedy mean for Shakespeare. We'll also discuss how the play explores gender identities, especially through the figure that continues to be called Cesario. Cesario.